to begin this service. Now, the worship team is going to begin with a song that is uh, actually an old hymn that is about the blood of Jesus that brings forgiveness and cleanliness to our lives, and I know many of you will know it. But it just made me think of the verse in Revelation that says that they overcame the enemy by the power of the blood and through the word of their testimony. And I hope that that's why we're gathering today, that the word of testimony that's going to be what Jesus is doing in our lives will be powerful as we gather, and that the blood of Jesus will cover our lives in this place with power and forgiveness and joy and life. And that's what uh, being a follower of Jesus is all about. So with that thought in mind, welcome, and let's just uh, bow in prayer to open our service. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you. We thank you that you are present here among your people today. Lord Jesus, thank you that when we gather in your name that you promise to be powerfully present among us. So Lord, I just lift up each person sitting in these pews here today. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will encourage them, and I pray that this worship service today will just bring meaning and hope to their lives. Lord, I pray that the songs we sing, the scriptures we read, the testimonies we proclaim, Lord, that all of it will bring glory to you and bring deep meaning to your people. So, Lord, we worship you. We thank you for this gift of community, this gift of life, and we commit this service to you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing with us, please.
ask Karen Reimer if she would come and join us on the platform. Welcome here today, Karen. Karen represents a ministry called uh, Voice of the Martyrs, and she's going to be sharing that with us this morning. This morning. So welcome here. Where do you want this to be? Or do you want to hold it? Hold it? You are welcome to hold it. I was it. a teacher. I like being in control. Okay. There we go. Now we're scared. <laughs> Bless you as you share. <laughs> uh, good morning, everyone. Could we have that first slide up, please? A woman in India watches as her sister is dragged off by Hindu nationalists. She doesn't know if her sister is alive or dead. A man in North Korea, prison camp, is shaken awake after being beaten unconscious just to have the beating start over. A woman in Nigeria runs for her life. She has escaped from the Boko Haram who kidnapped her. She is pregnant, and when she returns home, her community will reject her and her baby. A group of children are laughing and talking as they come down to their church's sanctuary after eating together. Instantly, many of them are killed by a bomb blast. It's Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. These people don't live in the same region or even in the same continent, but they share an important characteristic. They are all Christians, and they suffer because of their faith. While Christian persecution takes many forms, it's defined as any hostility experienced as a result of identification with Jesus Christ, from Sudan to Afghanistan, from Nigeria to North Korea, from Colombia to India, followers of Christianity are targeted for their faith. They are attacked, they are discriminated against at work and at school. They risk sexual violence, torture, arrest, and much more. There are over 360 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. Persecution of Christians is one of the biggest human rights issues in the world. One out of seven of every Christian will experience some form of persecution. Now, if you look at the map, anything in blue is where there is some form of persecution. Now, I don't have a lot of time to tell you a whole lot today, so I'm just going to highlight a couple of things and a couple of countries. Um, first of all, North Korea 
has ranked number one for 19 straight years as the most persecuted country in the world, with an estimation of 300,000 Christians in a population of 25 million. However, some sources state that Afghanistan is tied for first place with North Korea. In the early 1900s, the capital, Pyongyang, was known as the Jerusalem of the East because of its 2,000-plus churches. However, now it is a country where it is stated that absolute persecution reigns, and the only country which is governed by a dead leader, Kim Il-sung. About 30,000 Christians are thought to be suffering in one of the four known camps that are reserved for prisoners convicted of serious crimes, such as attempting to flee the country, having unauthorized contact with South Koreans, or merely for being a Christian. North Korean defectors explain that Christianity is thought to be a crime that's as serious as the trafficking of narcotics. Now, I'm going to just talk, this isn't specifically to one country, but mainly in Egypt and Pakistan, and it is something that's really dear to my heart, so um, I wanted to share this with you. There is basically a silent epidemic of kidnapping, forced marriages, and forced conversions of Christian girls and women, which take place in Pakistan and Egypt, but are largely ignored by the police and civil authorities. A recent report claims that every year more than 1,000 women from religious minority groups are forcibly converted to Islam. This proves that the majority of these victimized young women and girls are Christians. Forced marriages usually follow a similar pattern. The girls are often between the ages of 12 and 25. They're abducted, made to convert to Islam, and then married to their abductor or an associate. So each one of these pictures that you see is an actual girl that was kidnapped and who has not been returned home. I'm going to just highlight uh, one of them, and her name is Huma. Uh, in October 2019, 14-year-old Huma Yunus was kidnapped at gunpoint from her home, forcibly converted to Islam, and then married to her kidnapper, who had confined her to one room which she could not leave. Since the abduction, her parents have been working on her behalf, seeking to annul the marriage. At a court hearing, the abductor produced false evidence of Huma's age, and in five minutes, the judge ruled against Huma's parents. In addition, the abductor's family is threatening Huma's family and their lawyer to drop their case or face a violent response. Huma, now 17, has at least one child. There seems little hope of her being freed from her captor. Now, the question that I often ask is when I'm praying for these girls, what if God chooses not, not to rescue them? And even though I keep praying that he will and he'll comfort the parents, um, what if he doesn't? And I came across a prayer that I thought, this is just perfect for those particular circumstances. Cause her to look into the eyes of the little ones and long to share you with them. Give her the courage to do so and wisdom as to how she can introduce them to the gospel. I pray that the husband will see the character of Christ in her and be drawn to the one who alone can bring satisfaction and peace. Provide your word, Lord, whether that's in a secret place, on the way to the market, or in a hidden corner of the house, and then eventually in the open with her newly redeemed husband. Bring her to other Christian women who are in a similar situation, even if she meets them when being forced to go to a mosque. 
Give her perseverance in her faith. Please do not allow her to grow weary, but to cast herself on the power of the Holy Spirit to sustain her in the faith of her forefathers. Comfort her and let her know that she is most certainly not forgotten. She is loved. She is your princess. Reassure her of this. If you want a copy of this particular prayer, I have them at my table. February 19th marked the fourth anniversary of the abduction of Leah Sherabu, a Nigerian schoolgirl who was kidnapped by Boko Haram terrorists when she was 14 years old. Originally, 110 students were captured during the raid and have been released, but Leah has continued to be held captive because she refused to renounce her Christian faith. Leah, who turned 19 years of age on May 14th, has reportedly been married off to one of her abductors and is rumored to have two children. During an interview in January of this year, Nigeria's chief of army staff said that concrete strategies are being put in place to secure the release not only of Leah Serebu, but also all hostages held by the terrorists. However, any promises of government action have been limited. This past Christmas, Leah's family admitted that they were tired of making calls to the government, for it seems as if their pleas are in, for intervention have been falling on deaf ears. Instead, they've determined to remain silent and seek the continued prayers of concerned Christians around the world. In response to the family's wishes, the Voice of Martyrs Canada joins in her ongoing prayer on behalf of Leah and the other abducted victims who need to be rescued from their captivity. So what we're going to have now is, um, we're going to, I'm going to just have them show you a video, and the video talks about the voice. Uh, you know, just, this is oh, the 50th anniversary for the, the voice, voice of, of Martyrs Canada I'm gonna, serving our persecuted gonna, brothers and sisters around the world them, living in talk. hostile and restricted nations as they continue to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right now, we're going to watch a video about our work around the world. Jesus Christ was beaten, mocked, and misunderstood. He endured the cross and despised the shame. Though the King of Kings, he was persecuted and died for our sake. In this world we will face tribulation, but you promise you'll be right here with us. And he said to his followers, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And to this day, all over the world, they still do. Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus If our God is for us, we are not alone But Jesus promised more That those who suffer for his name's sake would not be forgotten Not by God And not by the family of God The Voice of the Martyrs was founded by a persecuted Christian as well Richard Wormbrand reached out for Christ to the Nazis in the early 1940s when they came into his native Romania. He felt a calling to reach out to atheists for Christ. He prayed for opportunities to share Christ with the Russians as well. And when the Soviet communists entered into Romania in 1944, they came right to his doorstep. Richard boldly witnessed to them as well. And just as Jesus promised, they hated him for it. He was arrested and sent to prison for a total of 14 years. 
often in solitary confinement, often tortured. Through it all, he held on to his love for God and committed to witness for Christ in word and deed even to his torturers. In 1967, Richard, now free from jail and out of Romania, founded an organization committed to sharing the stories of others who, like him, were being jailed, persecuted, tortured, or killed for their faith. He often quoted Hebrews 13.3, Remember those in prison as if you were in prison with them. That organization today is operating in 68 countries around the world, in regions that are dangerous, in countries that are restricted, reaching out through persecution response, through Bible distribution, and through frontline ministry. That organization is committed to stand with their persecuted family by saying, we will not let them suffer in silence. We will not let them serve alone. That organization, the voice of the martyrs. We will share their stories. We will mobilize the body of Christ to stand together with our brothers and sisters who face persecution wherever it happens. We will serve our persecuted family through practical and spiritual assistance. And we will carry on the mission of the one who called us, Jesus Christ, who said go and make disciples of all nations, no matter the cost. Now we have to ask the question, what can I do? We know what Voice of Martyrs does, and what can I here in Swift Current, Saskatchewan do to make a difference? And the number one thing that they will tell you, anyone that's under persecution, is pray for us. Prayer is our most powerful tool, and there's different tools that you can get to help you pray. Now, we talked, you saw the newsletter, and the newsletter comes once a month, and that newsletter, in it, there is a calendar of how you can pray in more general terms, but if you want to know how to specifically pray, I encourage you to sign up for the emails, and with the emails, they'll give you a situation, there's a bombing in uh, uh, Nigeria, here's how you pray. Um, somebody like Leah, for example, is kidnapped. Here's how you pray. So if you sign up for the email, it's very specific. Now, the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter, this comes once a month. It's a little bit different. What it does is it um, tells you uh, about a particular situation in a country, for example. It's more general. For example, it told you ISIS. How did ISIS get started? There was a whole article on that. So it's really quite informative that way. It's free. They never ask you for money. And in addition, you get a prize. I give you this book, which is called Tortured for Christ, which was written by Richard Rubrandt. It's, um, it's his life story of how he uh, suffered through um, persecution. If we could go to a couple more slides, another thing that you can do is your letter writing. 
And the letter writing is really uh, very significant. You would think it wouldn't matter, but what has happened with letter writing is um, some of these people get so much mail that they actually get released. There was two women in Iran. They finally got tired of their mail, so they let them go. And, um, you know, it's quite interesting. And so, and then in another country, a fellow, he got uh, so much mail that they started treating him better. So you never know what's going to happen. And if you're interested in that, the website is on the bottom of where you can get the information. It's actually from the American site. Uh, we did have a, pre-COVID, we had a couple of churches in town that were actually meeting as a group uh, to do uh, write letters. So if you're interested in any of that, come and see me. You can sign up for Air Miles card. So if you just go another slide, there we are. Um, Air Miles slide, or the Air Miles card you can use in Staples or in Safeway. And what they do is they use that, those Air Miles, to help people travel to those countries, help people get out um, as well. So if you're interested in any of those things, just come and see us back at the table. We have all kinds of books from all over the world of people that are, um, have been suffering and how they have been victorious in many situations. So just encourage you to do that. Thank you. Please stand again and sing with us. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the
painful camp we call it forged and as I was writing those chapels I was thinking through one of the chapels and how much it doesn't just apply to the youth who are coming to that paintball camp but how much I need to reflect on this so I'm going to read from Hebrews Hebrews 3 verses 1 through 15 in the ESV therefore holy brothers you who share in a heavenly calling Consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were being spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion 
on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. It is so easy to get uh, confused with the difference between being hardened and being firm. Um, Throughout our camp, we use references of forging a tool, making a screwdriver, a hammer, a chisel, something like that. And if you've ever worked with metal, if you heat up metal and then you quench it really quickly, it becomes very hard. And if you use that tool, if you hit something with that tool, it cracks and it shatters. Being, we often think that we should harden ourselves, that we shouldn't be easily pushed around by the world, that we should know where we stand. But there's a difference about hardening our hearts to a point where we become brittle versus a tempering, a slow cooling, being hard, but being flexible. I think what this scripture is talking about is not being like a soft piece of steel where you bend and you stay bent by every whim of the world. It's not talking about being so hard that you become brittle and unmoving, that you become useless as a tool. But I think it's about becoming tempered, standing firm in your convictions, so that when the world tries to bend you, you bounce back, you stand firm in your convictions with the Lord. So I want to challenge you, as I challenge myself every day, to look at my heart and ask, is it becoming hard and brittle and useless? Or is it being tempered by scripture? Is God crafting my heart so that when the world pushes against me, I bounce back to his word? I'm just going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, I confess that my heart is often hard to the work that you are doing around us. That I often uh, struggle to to participate in what you are doing, to allow myself an opportunity of uh, softness or or perceived weakness uh, to participate with you, Lord. Uh, and I've often become brittle and easily cracked because of that, Lord. I ask that you temper my heart and you temper the hearts of this church, that we find our strength not in hardening ourselves off, but in in turning to you and having you set our hearts to the perfect hardness, to, to temper us to what you are doing. So when the world pushes, we bounce back. That we aren't soft and easily swayed, but we're not brittle either, Lord. And Lord, I thank you for this church and just how open they are to learn from you, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, Dave. That was David Kerwin, who serves as one of our elders.
and uh, also is on staff at West Bank Bible Camp. So before I uh, get into the message, I actually will be reading a statement or an announcement from West Bank Bible Camp. And uh, this, this comes from the board. And uh, just to inform the churches, I will just read the, the statement from the West Bank board. Jeff and Mandy Penner and their family will be moving on from West Bank Bible Camp at the end of the camping season, which was this past Friday. We would like to thank them for their years of service to camp and their dedication to spreading the gospel and seeing kids come to, to saving faith in Christ. We wish them all the best, and we ask that you keep them in your prayers as they determine their next steps. We would also appreciate your prayers for West Bank as we move forward in the ministry and seek the Lord's direction for camp. In the interim, Kurt Robertson will take West Bank into fall until a permanent replacement can be found. So again, that, that announcement is, is on behalf of the board. Now, the chairman of the board is uh, a part of our church. That's, that would be Adrian Shabati. Um, and Pastor Darren is also on, on the West Bank board. Neither of them, unfortunately, can be here today. But they've both assured me that, well, Darren's back from holidays, so he will be here for sure. Adrian will be here next week. And they both are, are very open for you to ask them any questions or anything about the process that the camp has been through. So just so you, you know that they are going to be here and you can certainly ask your questions. So obviously this has been um, a bit of a difficult season for the camp. And uh, they've just come to their kind of official, this last week was the last week of kids. I think this week is their staff retreat. Am I right about that? Yeah. And so we just want to be praying for the camp for sure. We want to be praying for the board. And we also want to be praying for, for Jeff and Mandy and their family as this will be a difficult time for them as they transition now. So would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. So Lord Jesus, uh, we lift up West Bank Bible Camp to you. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of many years. And we just give you praise and glory, even for the incredible impact on kids this past summer. Lord, right now, we want to lift up Jeff and Mandy and their family to you. And we just pray, God of all comfort, would you comfort them where there's pain and difficulty. Lord, we pray that you would encourage them, and we pray that you would affirm them in their years of ministry. And Lord, we also pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give them hope and give them direction in terms of where you're leading them. So Lord, we just, just want to honor their ministry and honor them and lift them up as a family to you. Lord, I also uh, want to pray for, for Adrian and Darren and the other board members. And I ask that you will just continue to give them wisdom. Lord, I pray that you will um, just give them clarity in the decisions they need to make. And Lord, we pray for Kurt as he will take up leadership in the interim. We just pray that you will give him strength and wisdom as well. So again, Lord, we, we lift up the camp to you. And Lord, we know that there have been so many staff and kids impacted and transformed in their lives this summer. And Lord, we just pray against any work of the enemy that wants to detract from that good work. And we pray, Lord, that, that you, Holy Spirit, will just seal the good work you have done in people's lives. And Lord, that you would protect the camp. Lord, that uh, your spirit would hover over all the leaders. And Lord, 
especially um, now as we lift up Jeff and Mandy and their family to you. So Lord, that is our prayer. That is our cry. And we pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, well, how do I transition from that into today's sermon? I guess that was it. So you probably see on the screen that the sermon today is called Undercover Christian. Wow, isn't that an interesting title that I picked after what we heard earlier about Voice of the Martyrs, where people are being persecuted around the world, and yet often in our culture, we function very well as undercover Christians, because we fear, even though persecution here would, I would say, be negligible, at least compared to what we heard today, and yet the reality is, is that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of Secret Service Christians. James Bond, 007 Christians, I've been one of them too. So, why am I talking about this today? Well, um, the main character in the scripture we're going to get to today is a man by the name of Joseph. And no, not the Joseph of the Old Testament that wore the coat of many colors. And no, not the Joseph that was married to Mary and the father of Jesus. No, this is Joseph of Arimathea. And um, we're going to unpack the story a little later, but just the one verse I want to show you from uh, John chapter 19, verse 38, says this about him. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. You didn't know Jesus had secret disciples, did you? Now, earlier in John, John wanted us to know that there was actually a lot of Jewish leaders who were secret disciples of Jesus. Back in chapter 12, verses 42 to 43, he said, they, again, referring to these religious leaders, would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. That last line is always a scary line to me, because how guilty am I of that all the time? Anyway, this is the picture of where, where we're going to go in John chapter 19 in just a few minutes. Now, as I thought about this undercover Christian theme that I was going to talk about today, the first memory I had was circa 1982. How many of you remember 1982? <laughs> None of you are admitting it. All right, well, Don Fraze here was a teenager, and I had a mullet. Oh, I love the 80s. Designer jeans, girls had big hair. Oh, wonderful, wonderful time in the 80s. Anyway, if you can... Now, back in 1982, though, I was, I was a young kid who was quite a committed Christian, and uh, there was, there was a, a lot of music at that time that we called Christian contemporary music. And believe it or not, there was even Christian heavy metal. How many of you have heard of Striper? Oh, yeah. Oh, someone young hearing about Striper. Well, Striper was so controversial back in the day because, I mean, they wore the whole spandex and everything heavy metal. They toured with Motley Crue, apparently threw Bibles out in the crowd. I don't know how that worked. But um, anyway, Christian heavy metal, I know it's weird for some of you to think, but it exists. I think it probably still does exist. I haven't listened to it in a while. Ever heard of One Bad Pig? There were some really weird, weird bands in that era. Anyway, there was this band that was really, really unknown. It was just a Canadian, a Canadian band, right? They're always never that well known. But they were called Daniel Band. And anyway, long story to just tell you, there was a song of a 17-year-old 
Christian Dawn was convicted. This was kind of the song that haunted me in my Christian faith. And I don't know if you guys are reading the words already, but like this second verse for sure, right? They say, well, I came and I gave you life. I gave abundantly. And now your friends, they mock my name and you stand there quietly. Well, you say you have faith. Well, that's real nice to know. Show me your faith by what you do and maybe your friends will know. So as a young kid, wanting to live for Jesus and wanting to stand up for my faith, and even though that was very hard in the high school I was in and feeling some of that persecution, this song both really spoke to me and also really convicted me and made me wonder, hmm, am I an undercover Christian? Am I ashamed to stand up for my faith because I don't want to be mocked or ridiculed? And so anyway, when I think of undercover Christian, I always have this wonderful memory. So with that, So we're going to come back to the story of Joseph, but before we get to Joseph and actually the other character who was a secret disciple as well, we need to just come back to the context of the text we're in. So we are in John chapter 19, which is the passion narrative of Jesus or the account of Jesus' trial and Jesus' death and crucifixion. So that's kind of the context of, of when this all happens. So if you have a Bible or you want to follow along in the screen, um, we'll be in John chapter 19 and verses 30 to the end of the chapter. So if you were here two weeks ago in our series, we took a bit of a break from our series last week, but we kind of ended with um, Jesus breathing his last, laying down his life, and giving his life for us. And that's where we ended two weeks ago. And now we'll pick up the story of now what happened to Jesus' body between his death and his resurrection. So starting at verse 30 of John 19. Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Now, we'll just pause there for a moment. Now, as we've been going through John, I know Pastor Darren has illustrated this often, hopefully myself as well, but we wanted to keep reminding you that John's gospel is very unique, very unique from the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John has a very, very specific and unique way that he wants to tell the story of Jesus. And there's so many times that he gives us overt and sometimes hidden clues as to some of the things he really wants us to catch on to and understand of what he's trying to say and and sometimes beneath the surface. So it's always important to John that we as readers will understand the timing of everything. And so that's why he says right off that it was the day of preparation when Jesus died. Now the day of preparation was the day just before Passover. And on the day before Passover, the Jewish priests would kill all the lambs and to prepare them for the lamb Passover meal the next day. And so John wants us to know that Jesus, the one he declared to be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the ultimate sacrifice that would mean that sacrifice no longer needs to be done because Jesus became the ultimate lamb of God, that on the very day of preparation before Passover was when Jesus died. And so John wants us to know the incredible significance of that timing. And he said that it was just before the Sabbath and it was a special Sabbath because historians and scholars suggest that this special, it was a special Sabbath because it was Sabbath aligning with Passover that year. 
And so that was the significance of this year that, that John wants us to know. Now, the Romans, they would be quite happy to leave bodies on the cross for as long as the poor criminal would suffer before he died, which sometimes was days. And they loved to have the bodies on the cross because that was just a big reminder to all the people, don't defy Rome or this will happen to you. It was a huge deterrent to them. But to the Jews, a dead body on the Sabbath is a horrible thing. It's being ceremonially unclean. And so basically they were able to go to the authorities and say, hey, we've got to not have dead bodies on crosses for the Sabbath. So what they would do to speed up death was to break the legs of those who, who were still alive and hadn't died yet. And the reason that that worked to bring death quickly was because on the cross, the only way you could breathe was to push up with your legs in order to get a breath. So of course, once they break the legs, then the person couldn't breathe anymore, and that would bring death rather quickly. Of course, John wants us to know that when they, they came to Jesus, that they didn't break his legs because he was already, already dead. But that's what's happening there. So, John is going to continue to point out things that are going to be about the fulfillment of Scripture that we are supposed to notice. So that's in the next part. So let's read now from verse 32. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. So again, John wants us to see the incredible fulfillment of Scripture. Now, the reason that it was a big deal that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, or what he's now personifying as the, the Lamb of God who is the ultimate Passover Lamb, is that in their Jewish tradition, that when they would eat the Lamb on the Passover, that no bone was to be broken. And so you see this in a couple places, but here in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, it says, these are the regulations for the Passover meal. It must be eaten inside the house, take none of the meat outside the house, and do not break any of the bones. And the whole community of Israel must celebrate it. So again, John, who's writing probably primarily to Jewish people who would be reading, who would understand their Passover traditions, they would get this right away. But we often have to dig a little deeper to go, well, why, what's the big significance of this? Again, it was the fulfillment of showing who Jesus was as the ultimate Passover lamb. Um, this also could be relating to a verse in Psalm 34 that says, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. And again, John wants us to continue to see how Jesus completely fulfills the scriptures. Now, since they noticed that uh, Jesus was already dead, they didn't break his legs, but for some reason, the soldier decided to pierce his side. Now, you can read around about that with historians and so on, and not, not exactly sure why, other than the fact that, again, they wanted to just ensure death. And so, like they suggest that perhaps they were aiming for the heart, basically, again, they wanted to, to do this in order to ensure death. 
But what does John want, to, want us to see? John wants us to once again see that this fulfilled scripture. And uh, you see, um, in, in the whole sim- symbolism and so on of, of blood and water that, again, poured out of the side of Jesus when he was pierced, blood, scripturally, always represented death, and water, scripturally, always represented life, or sometimes even the life of the spirit. So in many ways, what John wants us to begin to understand prophetically here is the idea of of death, blood, forgiveness, and water, life, and spirit. Some would suggest that he's already prefiguring the coming of the Holy Spirit. Some would suggest that these symbols of, of water and blood were foreshadowing the important things in the church of the Lord's Supper and Baptism, blood and water. Later, when John writes a letter, 1 John chapter 5, he says this, 1 John 5, 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. So if you were to meditate on that verse, you would see all of this imagery coming through of the importance of the water and the blood and what John is wanting us to to get, to understand, and also to see that, wow, everything about Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy, is a fulfillment of scripture. Scriptures written hundreds of years before filled in incredible detail by Jesus and by his death on the cross. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, who laid down his life and gave everything for us. And he wants us to get that deeply and deeply as we understand the incredible miracle of it all. So it's in that setting that we get to our two main characters that kind of surprise us in this story. So go to verse 38 now of John chapter 19. So later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Now, let's talk a little bit about this Joseph of Arimathea and and Nicodemus. Now, so far, I've been hinting that I'm going to be kind of hard on them for being secret disciples, okay? And, and to be fair, John is a little bit too, because he's making sure that we know this Joseph of Arimathea, like he followed Jesus but secretly, and then when he talks about Nicodemus, this other guy that helped him, he said, remember him? He's the guy that came to see Jesus at night. So, if you're familiar, um, John tells us about this man named Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. And very surely, if you go back to John chapter 3 and read the story of Nicodemus, he too was a religious Jewish leader, but out of fear, came to Jesus at night because he didn't want to be seen. So John wants us to notice this, but I don't think that John is just slagging on these poor guys and calling the hypocrites or whatever. I think what he's wanting to begin to show us as they've been undercover Christians, they've been operating under fear, but they're now starting to make some key decisions to maybe show that there's a heart change and maybe some courage coming out of that fear. You see, Joseph Joseph of Arimathea 
and Nicodemus were both a part of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin to the Jews was kind of like the Supreme Court. Like you couldn't get higher in terms of the authority and position you had among your people to make spiritual and political decisions. They were it. They were important, important men. And yet, even though Jesus had been convicted by that very group of people, killed on orders by that very group of people, now Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are in a sense coming out of the closet and are going to let it be known that maybe we do believe and follow this Jesus guy. This would have been huge for them. He had to go to, uh, Joseph of Arimathea had to go to Pilate to ask permission. That would have been a big deal. And we're also supposed to notice here that uh, Nicodemus bought a whole bunch of spices, 75 pounds of spices. Now we read that and go, yeah, whatever. Um, when I was reading in one commentator about this, he said probably 75 pounds of spices for burial probably cost him in our money equivalent about $12,000. So he wants us to notice and see that Nicodemus also was like putting his money where his mouth is, kind of. He was like coming out to say, I'm going to identify with this Jesus guy and I'm going to spend the big bucks to do what we're supposed to do to honor Jewish people that die and bring the spices and prepare them. And so that's, that's kind of the picture of, yes, we've got two undercover Christians living under the spirit of fear, and yet something's changing that's causing them to stand up now and say, I think we want to be identified with Jesus. And, and it's, it's a wonder, what's, what's giving them this courage? Why did they risk so much? Let's keep reading in verse 40 now. So it says, taking Jesus' body... The two of them wrapped it with the strips, with the spices and strips of linen. This, one, this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, just in these few verses, what we under, if we read between the lines here and know what John is trying to say to us here, Joseph and Nicodemus are making some huge risks to do what they're doing in asking for and preparing Jesus' body for burial. As I said earlier, they were both Sanhedrin. So really, in doing this, they were risking their political and religious careers and reputations. Huge. It would have impacted all of their connections it would have impacted their families. It would have been huge for the people that mattered to them to know that they would identify and do this for Jesus. They also took a big risk in touching a dead body in order to prepare it for burial. See, remember, Passover is the next day. By Jewish law and custom, if you touch a dead body, you are ceremonial unclean. So Joseph and, and Nicodemus, both members of the Sanhedrin, would now not be able to participate in Passover and bear the shame and the ridicule and the others looking down on them because they dared touch a dead body. And yet not only did they touch any dead body, but the body of one that their peers would have hated and despised because they were the ones that got him killed. That would have been a huge risk for them. And then the tomb. They gave him a very expensive, and as one commentator said, a tomb of prestige. A, a, a tomb that no one had ever been in, and it was a huge honor. And that would have been huge in that culture. 
So again, it would have been a big expense and a big risk to their reputations to come out and do what they did. So as I thought about this and thought about the huge risks that Joseph and Nicodemus took to stand up for their faith, of course, I had to go back to a 17-year-old 1982 Don, but slightly older now, and ask myself the same question I would have asked as a teenager. Am I willing to stand up and take risks if necessary to identify with Jesus? Am I willing to risk my reputation, my, um, my job, my career, the reputation of the people in the church, the reputation of my family, the reputation, like, am I willing to be identified with Jesus, to truly be his follower, no matter what the risk? Still a tough question, even today at 50-something-year-old on. What do we risk? Interesting on this day to hear about the persecuted church. We're not persecuted anything like them, but we certainly have, at times, have a hostile culture, a culture that isn't too keen on what seems to be an exclusive thing we follow. Are we ashamed of the gospel? Are we willing to risk like these men and take courage to stand up? really hard. I would suggest that sometimes the hardest place to stand for Jesus might be within your own spiritual community. But what are we willing to risk to truly stand for Jesus? So I did a lot of thinking about this and I could, I could try to give you all kinds of wonderful pat answers of how we get from, from fear, from being an undercover Christian to actually having the courage to risk and to stand. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you, as I know he does. There is one quote, though, that I want to, that I want to share with you as I come near the end. And it's from uh, the famous Nelson Mandela. <laughs> and he said, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Good quote, isn't it? Our question today is, how do we conquer the fear? That fear of man, that fear of people that I think most of us struggle with. And you know, when it comes to the fear of people, the thing that breaks my heart so often is that most Christians I meet, the biggest thing they fear is that others within their spiritual community are going to judge them. That's what I hear, the biggest fear. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad to think that we're sitting in a room right here and rather than thinking about how much we love Jesus and how much we love our community, that maybe some of us are wondering, I wonder if those people over there are judging me. I wonder if they're actually accepting me and that fear that grips us. Now I would suggest to you that often that fear isn't warranted. We feel it, even though it may not be true, but sadly, sometimes it is. So I want to encourage us today, how do we, how do we rise above that? How do we walk in courage? How do we accept the truth 
of who we are in Christ, who Christ has called us to be. And when we look across the room, are we loving our brothers and sisters? Are we believing in them? Are we believing in the Jesus in them? Are we wanting to call them from fear to courage and say, let's walk together. Let's not be undercover Christians either here or in the world we live in, but let's stand up for this incredible message that is supposed to have set us free and given us courage so we can rise up from our fear to live for Jesus and and live fully this life that he laid his life down to give us. That's what being a follower of Jesus is supposed to be. We're not supposed to be fearful people worried about being judged all the time and thinking about everybody else and how they aren't measuring up. We're supposed to be free to live the abundant life, to live the fruit of the Spirit, to be free and live the kind of life and enjoy all the wonderful things you've given us in our vocation and everywhere. That's the Christian life and that's what Jesus died for, for us to live in that kind of victory and that kind of courage. Let that be our heart today. Now, I wanna, I'm going I'm to close with one more story. And I was inspired to find this story because our worship team today is going to close with a song that uh, to a lot of you older people, you're going to go, Ooh, cool, I haven't heard that song in a long time. And some of you younger people are going to go, oh my goodness, where on earth did they find that song? Well, I took you back to 1982. The worship team today is actually going to take you back to 1893. You ready to get in your time machines and go back to 1893? Now, the song that they're going to sing is called When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Some of you are going, huh? (laughs) Well, let me explain. That song was written by a gentleman in 1893. His name is James Black. Now, James Black was a music teacher by day a devoted follower of Jesus, and you know what he did with his free time? He was a youth leader. And he loved youth, and he spent his time leading the youth group in his church. Now, um, the the story goes, and it's interesting that we talked about two 14-year-old girls today, because my story is about a 14-year-old girl. When James was walking to church one night to his youth group, he met a 14-year-old girl who was obviously really, really struggling, Um, alcoholic family, abusive situation, very difficult situation. He took the risk, even though I'm sure he was afraid, to actually talk to her and invite her to come to his youth group. And lo and behold, she came. And the story goes on that she started coming quite regularly to the youth group. But then there was one day when, um, now at the beginning of youth group, they would do something called roll call. Now I'm sure Pastor Darren never does this, But roll call is basically like taking attendance. And so at the beginning of youth group, they go through all the names and check off that everyone was there. Well, this one week, this girl, she wasn't there. And he felt sad about that because, of course, he was concerned about what was going on with her. But also what hit hit him was the whole idea of roll call, and it made him think of the book of Revelation that talks about something called the Lamb's Book of Life. And the Lamb's Book of Life is the book where names of Jesus' followers are listed in there. And he started to think about how sad it would be for this girl that I so care so much about for that roll call to happen and for her not to be in that book. And it just saddened him so much that maybe she wouldn't be in that book that it actually inspired him to write a song. And that song is the one we're going to sing in just a few minutes. But the, there's another interesting part to the story. 
in, in this moment, he took another risk. That would have been hard to do as a, as a young youth leader. But he found out where this young girl lived, went to her house, and found out that she was suffering from pneumonia. And actually helped, I don't know how, doesn't, the story doesn't say, but somehow helped call a doctor and help this girl get the, get the treatment she needed. But again, why am I telling you this story? Not just because it's interesting, even though I hope it's a little bit interesting that we're going to sing the song. But you know, when I thought about how do we step out in courage and take risks, you know, sometimes it's not like big, big, bold moves, like I've got to stand up for something or lose my job, or I'm going to, you know, like some, sometimes it's, it's small things each and every day where we choose to invite, where we choose to get over our fear of talking to someone and just be willing to talk to them. Or, or when we are concerned about someone, we don't just gossip about them or say we're praying for them, but we actually go and see them and say, hey, how are you doing? We miss you. And Again, those would sometimes be risky things to do. But it just inspired me that this young man, as a youth leader, was courageous and overcame his fear, took risks to be courageous, to not be an undercover Christian, but to stand boldly just where he lived and what he did. And I hope that that can, that can inspire us today. So worship team, why don't you come? We're going to get to sing, when the role is conned up, called up yonder, I'll be there. And you know, last week when uh, Phil Gunther was here, he ended, he talked about all of us being pieces of a puzzle. And part of the word was, let's not be the missing piece. And I guess maybe the word today through this song is, let's make sure our name's in the book. Let's move away from fear and the temptation to be undercover Christians. And let's stand bully. Let's stand, what did I say? Fully. <laughs> let's just sing. Go. Please <laughs> stand with us.
Thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us. We've been reminded of that this morning. Help us to step out in faith and to continue to share what you've done for us and not give up on praying for people when maybe it's been years that we've been praying for them. Help us to just continue on and trust you with it all. Help us to have a good week and to think about what we've learned and seen this morning. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you. Have a good week.